So on Tuesday, it made national news that uh, a judge ordered a 30-year-old man to vacate his parents' house. Did anybody see this? So, um, yeah, he had been uh, living there. Multiple attempts had been made to uh, help him to move out. And uh, he moved back there when he was 22. It's his childhood home, and he's been there ever since. Doesn't have a job. He doesn't help out around the house. He's just there. Uh, but before uh, you think that I'm just knocking people who live with their parents, I'm not. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons why people live with their parents. I lived in my parents' home until I was 27. Super thankful for that provision. People live in their parents' homes to help take care of them, uh, cultural norms, all sorts of other things. So I just want to remove that stigma as we talk about this, because I really want to point to how he's living with his family, not where he's living uh, so much. So apparently, after several attempts to help him move out back in February, his parents sent him his first eviction notice. The father wrote this very bluntly, After a discussion with your mother, we've decided you must leave this house immediately. You have 14 days to vacate. You will not be allowed to return. We will take whatever actions are necessary to enforce this decision. So that's tough love, right? Well, he didn't move out. So the next month, they wrote him another letter giving him instructions on how to organize himself to move, encouraging him to get a job, offering uh, to help him find a place to live, and even including $1,100 to give him a head start. But he still did not leave. So this past Tuesday, ended up in court, and the judge sided with the parents and said he indeed does have to vacate. If you read articles or if you watch any of the videos, what's fascinating is that he totally does not understand the problem with his living situation, why his parents would ask him to leave the house. One CNN article quoted him as saying that he's never been expected to contribute to household expenses or assisted with chores or uh, the maintenance of the house or claims that uh, this is simply a component of his living arrangement (laughs) with them. Uh, He's not unaware of what they have been providing him, though. He himself says that all they provide is space, hot water, heat, etc. It was only recently that they cut off his cell phone and stopped giving him food. Um, You just sense that there's no gratitude, uh, no understanding of the cost to provide these things for him, and, and definitely no desire to participate. He said he didn't know why. His parents were pushing him out so quickly after eight years of this. Uh, And here's what gets really awkward is after the judge uh, made the decision, they all go home to the same house. He said they never interact with one another. Um, If one person's in the kitchen, they grab their stuff and immediately go to another place in the house. They never talk. They try to avoid one another. So would you say that this man is a meaningful member Of his family? No. Right. See, simply living in the same house doesn't make a healthy family. They're never together. They have no relational connection. He's grown and he does nothing around the house to help, and he leaves the burden of finances to his parents. So ultimately, this stems from a distorted view of what it means to be family. And again, I don't discount that there could be way more to this story than you or I know, but uh, let's just look through the window that we've been given. It appears that his idea of family is extremely self-centered. Family exists to meet his needs only. 
And the beauty of family is destroyed by that distortion. Just moving out isn't going to solve this. Like I said, it's not where he lives. It's how he's living with his family. There's a bigger issue here. It's, it's completely loveless. This family doesn't look like a family. Family should be marked by love, and that should result in mutual benefit, joy, flourishing. A family, that ha- a family has the ability to uh, be a testimony of love to the outside world. It could be a safe place for others. Have you ever been in the home of a solid, loving family? Feels good to be in there. It, it's comforting. It's, it can be even healing. But what do you think it's like sitting at their dinner table? How do you think it feels to, to breathe air that, that, that's that thick with tension? It would be suffocating, the complete opposite of what you would hope to encounter. The church is family. The local church is family. We're a family, and we're supposed to be marked by love. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about meaningful membership in the church. And we're asking, what does it look like to be a meaningful membership of the church, and specifically the local church? So we're going to walk through a few passages today, and we're going to cover the flow of meaningful membership and the facets of meaningful membership. I want us to see where meaningful membership comes from, the flow, and and then talk about some specific aspects that mark meaningful membership. That would be the facets. So before we start, I want to go back to the definition that Clint gave us at the beginning of this series. Uh, The church is the beloved and redeemed people of God filled with the presence of God, set apart for the purposes of God in the world. That's who we are. And so I never want to talk about what we should do without at least reminding ourselves of who we are. So let's go ahead, and and we're going to look at the flow of meaningful membership. There's a particular cascade of why that flows into the the many different what's and how's of of church membership. So uh, the church starts with Jesus, so that's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, Let's go back, and we'll look at Jesus' parting prayer before he faces the cross. He's been with his disciples for three years of ministry. And before he goes, he prays this amazing prayer in John 17. It's really long, but it's, it's awesome, and I recommend reading it. He prays it out loud. And when Jesus prays out loud, it's not for his benefit. It's for our benefit. He wants us to hear what he's saying to God. So let's hear the words that Jesus prayed for the church. Um, at this point, he's prayed extensively for his disciples, and now he's including all those who will believe in him through them. And that's us, right? Everyone who believes in Jesus today, the church came from those who would believe uh, from the apostles, from his disciples. So let's look at John 17, 21. It will be on the screen. He prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So when a person's about to die, their last words are important, right? I mean, people are always interested in the last words of a loved one, so that they might get some important message, maybe some mission, like take care of uh, your brother, take care of so-and-so, or some solution to a mystery, like all the money's buried under the floorboards in the kitchen. (laughs) 
Jesus is using his last words to pray that we would be one, that we would be one like he and the Father are one, to be one like God is one. There's no greater bond than that. He prays that we would be in them. And so there's this vertical aspect to Jesus' prayer for the church, and then this horizontal aspect, uh, you and me, the church, uh, we're to be connected to God, but not just in this mystical, individualistic way. Uh, together, connected to him. In order to do that, we have to be connected to one another, right? Jesus is talking about oneness, unity, oneness with God and oneness with each other. And the two ideas are connected in such a way that the bond cannot be broken. So what does he say is a result of this oneness? He says, that the world may know, may believe that you have sent me. So the expressed oneness of the church reveals Jesus to the world. And pay attention to that world expressed because the world actually has to see the oneness if it's going to point them to Jesus. So keep that in mind as we are moving through these passages that meaningful membership flows out of our oneness with God and our oneness with each other. Throughout this prayer, Jesus repeats that connection between oneness in the church and the world's belief in him. So why does oneness point to Jesus? Well, when people identify with one another, regardless of race, political affiliation, nationality, life stage, gender, it begs the question, why? What's uniting them? And the answer for us is Jesus. He's what unites us. And that's the testimony to the world from the church. And it doesn't stop there. Jesus prayed for oneness, but oneness isn't complete in and of itself until it's marked by love. Our oneness was established through the love of God. The Bible says God is one, and it also says God is love. What a compliment it would be to the church if people looked at us and they said, the church is one and the church is love. Or if we take it even uh, local, Seven Mile Road is one and they're characterized by love. Earlier uh, in the book of John, Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus ends this prayer in John 17, 26, saying to the Father, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus prays that we would have this oneness love that he experiences with the Father. A little earlier in the same, same book, chapter 15, verse 12, he says to his disciples, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the love of the church is rooted in radical unselfishness. And that's not a term that I came up with. That's Tim Keller, pastor from New York City. Uh, You should look him up and read all his stuff. He's great. Uh, But you'll hear that throughout the sermon. Uh, Jesus commands us to love one another. Now, we all know the golden rule. We went back, uh, back in Mark, we talked about Jesus's greatest commandment, love God and love your neighbor. But this actually is not the same thing. Uh, what he's saying here 
I mean, that commandment still stands, but what he's saying here is very specific. He's talking to believers about believers. He's talking to the church. That doesn't negate or lessen the command to love everyone, but it strengthens this notion of oneness love that he talks about in the prayer that we just read. So Jesus prayed for and bought our unity with his blood. And unity is marked by love, and love is rooted in radical unselfishness. So this is the flow of of meaningful church membership. We have God-ordained unity marked by love that's radically unselfish. And all of this is best pictured in the context of community, because if we don't get together, there's no way to, to exercise that. There's no way to carry that out if we're alone. Um, the Bible has a beautiful picture of the church doing this in Acts 2. Uh, Mandy just read it, um, and uh, we're going to look through that in just a second. But Jesus, to give you a little context, Jesus has already come. He's already died. He's resurrected. He's ascended to the Father, and he's given this task to his uh, disciples to, to go and be his witnesses. And the Holy Spirit comes to them, just as Jesus has promised. Uh, and he empowers the gospel, the, the disciples to share the gospel. And uh, he, they do that in front of thousands in Jerusalem, uh, people from every nation, every language. Peter preaches this sermon that ends with about 3,000 people believing in Jesus and being baptized. There's the church, the church that led to our existence, right? Without them, we wouldn't be here. So then Luke, the author of Acts, snaps right to this beautiful picture of the fellowship of believers in chapter 2. And just picture this with me. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And there's so much to be said about this passage. There's so much going on. But first of all, I would want to know how do 3,000 people, many of whom are from uh, different, different, speak different languages, they're from different countries, they're probably strangers, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, fun people, boring people, loud people, quiet people, introverts, extroverts, singles, couples, liberals, conservatives, that guy or lady who just bugs you and you don't know why. Does anybody know someone like that? They're in there. They're, they're breaking bread together. How does that happen? Um, how do we get to that place? Because I think the world would love to figure out how we get there uh, without enforcing communism, of course, which this is not. Uh, there's nothing forced about this at all, actually. How did it happen? They believed in Jesus, the radically unselfish Savior, and they experience this, this flow that, we are, that we've been talking about for the past 10 or 15 minutes. Look at how they live with one another uh, as an expression of Jesus' love that they've come to know. They devoted themselves to radical unselfishness and radical togetherness. Let's talk about that word devoted. 
It means that they held fast to these things. They persevered in these things. It's not a flash in the pan. This is long-term, deep commitment rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. They're getting together. They're spending real time together over meals, breaking bread, deep relationship. They're serving one another. They're selling possessions and giving out of their glad and generous hearts. And what happens? If we look at that last verse, verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I had a moment while I was preparing this, uh, this sermon where I was like, wow, actually this is Jesus's prayer answered. Do you see it? This oneness love marked by radical unselfishness that shows the world that Jesus came, that shows the world that something's happened here. Jesus came, he died, he rose again. We believed in him and received salvation. His work is so powerful, his love is so great that it brought these people together who believe in him to love one another. So what does this look like for Seven Mile Road? How can we draw from the flow of meaningful membership as we respond to the work of God, to the love of God, as we seek to show the world around us that Jesus has come? How do we reflect this oneness love that Jesus prayed for? It doesn't have to be an exact replica of Acts 2, but the heart needs to be the same. The response should be the same. So here at Seven Mile Road, we've categorized these into four facets of meaningful membership. And I'm calling them facets because uh, just like facets of a diamond, they make up a whole. You can't really have one without the other. They're all connected, and they're all simple ways that the oneness love of God, marked by self-giving, shines through his people. So we're going to quickly work through these facets, gathering, belonging, serving, and giving. These are the signs of life, corporately as a church and individually uh, as a believer. They bless the church, they grow you, and they show the world uh, that Jesus has come. So the first one's really easy, gathering. If we don't get together, that's pretty much a non-starter, right? How can, how can I get ticked off at you and forgive you if I never get to see you, right? Uh, a church that doesn't gather doesn't exist, plain and simple. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what happens when we meet, we confess our hope, Jesus, publicly. We provide a space where, where we worship God, yes, but also a space where those who don't can come see the family. It's like an open house. Uh, the author says not to neglect meeting together, but to encourage one another. So what happens when we get together? We encourage one another. I mean, it's encouraging just to see 
believers, other believers, that, that we're not alone in this. That should encourage you when, you when you look out and you see this group of people who are together because Jesus called them together. We're serving together. We're confessing together. Uh, we hear the word of God together, which has the power to transform us uh, into the image of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. None of that happens if you don't show up. Now, you might be asking, like, how much am I expected to be here, right? I think that's kind of like where our minds go, like, okay, where's the threshold, you know, where I can just be making it? Uh, And there's no Bible verse that tells you. Um, So I'm not going to put a legalistic limit on absences from the pulpit, but just flip through your New Testament, and, and you'll see how important the gathering is. It is important. But the better question for you is, where does it sit on your hierarchy of uh, priorities? Because, I mean, I miss things all the time uh, because I have things that I find more important. Uh, Ask yourself that. How important is it to you? Because it's self-evident from the Bible that it's important, Um, but it takes a little introspection. Um, Do you stub your toe and decide, that's it, I'm not going to church? (laughs) Or uh, are you thinking even about Saturday night, how your Saturday night decisions affect your ability to come and worship with the people of God on Sunday? Uh, Bad mood on Sunday, or maybe there's a game on TV, uh, and all these things take precedence over getting together with the people of God and doing what I just talked about. Uh, All that, it's not simply coming together to to show up and, and save face and be holy, it's coming together to, to be one, to witness to the world about Jesus and to worship him and respond to his grace. I mean, I know there's a lot of different things we can be doing today. Uh, for some of you, this is your only day off. Uh, but priorities are only necessary when there's competition, right? Um, it's obviously important to a great deal of you because you're here today, right? <laughs> so, I mean, that's encouraging. Um, but this is important. Gathering is one facet of meaningful membership. So our next facet is belonging. Uh, If we gather and we don't belong, there's a problem. Uh, Meaningful membership requires belonging, relational vulnerability, connection. If we don't commit with a level of vulnerability and investment to our church, we're not going to feel like we belong. Uh, If we never say, I'm here, then our gathering is in vain. We see belonging in the early church in Acts 2 uh, when, we, when we read that they had all things in common. They were breaking bread with one another, caring for each other's needs, devoted to one another. This goes on all over our church, and especially in our gospel communities or our DNA groups, uh, shared meals, intimate conversation, confession of sin, encouragement, truth being told in love, relational investment on every level from anyone, not just from leaders. This is our church's platform to love one another. You're investing in others. You're listening to them. You're providing a family context for the church, sticking around long enough to be a friend. And that blesses the church. And again, to to non-believers, you're opening your home. You're showing them the family of God, longevity of relationship, the work that Christ has done on your behalf. You're mobilizing uh, with the people of God to bless the community around you. 
For us, this has looked like gospel communities providing winter supplies for, for the homeless at uh, the community day center in Waltham, um, funding Christmas shopping for single moms, hosting cookouts where we just hang out and spend time and get to know our neighbors. In all of this, you're thriving too. A church where no one belongs will go one of two ways. It could just disintegrate because as soon as uh, consumers or uh, highly guarded people uh, don't get what they want, they just move on to a new church and do the same thing there. Uh, It could also turn into a superficial show, which is a lot sneakier, where everyone's working for this appearance of righteousness, controlling their image to fit what they believe is required to belong, to be accepted. Both of these kill relational vulnerability and connection, and they kill belonging. So belonging naturally links us uh, to serving, because uh, if we belong, if we're investing, we're serving uh, at the church. You even heard probably some examples of service in that category of belonging. They just naturally go with one another. Uh, We worship a servant king who laid down his life for us, We cannot be meaningful members of the church if we won't serve. And there are so many ways to do that. Uh, There's no serving quota, the same way there's no attendance quota. It's a position of the heart. We have a diverse church. God has given you a set of gifts and abilities, both natural and spiritual. And Paul writes about this uh, in Romans, about what we should do with these. Look with me at Romans 12, 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So God in his grace has given church members gifts. And Paul says, let's use them. Meaningful membership requires that we use them. A church devoid of service devolves into chaos, disorganization, burnt out pastoral staff, breaching suffers, care suffers. Uh, The gathering, again, would probably disperse and just recreate that chaos in another church. Uh, But this isn't Seven Mile Road. Our our service teams are devoted. They're sacrificial. I can't thank you enough for how much you use your gifts to love and serve the church. Um, You bless our church. You bless our guests. And the world around us sees Jesus because of what you do. Um, And if anything, most of you need a break. So, uh, in fact, this is a good time to say uh, that I'm not preaching any of these facets in order to accuse our church. Uh, I mean, let the Spirit of God speak to you where he's speaking. If he is challenging you, be challenged. Embrace that. But I'm not preaching to accuse you. I'm not preaching to diminish all that our church does. God's working through you. I'm grateful. I know the rest of the lead team is just as grateful. Um, But we're teaching on church membership, and this is the Word of God, so let's all hear it receptively. So the Acts 2 church, uh, they portray this group of people using their resources to serve one another. Uh, In the same way belonging links easily to serving, serving links easily to giving. 
Uh, membership, meaningful membership, includes financial giving. And giving is just like any other facet. should be motivated by gratitude and love. Uh, the Bible says you should give generously, but again, it provides no set number on how much you should give. Again, this is a matter of priorities. Just like every other facet, giving should be generous. It should be sacrificial. It should be cheerful, and it should be regular. Uh, we serve a generous God, so we give. Uh, giving supports the church's mission to make disciples. To, uh, this includes uh, staff, care, outreach, evangelism, church planting, missions, operations, so many things. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2, Paul's instructing the local church on how they should give. And this is in the context of a special gift that uh, they were supposed to be giving to Jerusalem, to their starving brothers and sisters, because there was a famine there. And he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So the local church is generously making an offering for their starving brothers and sisters in the church of Jerusalem. God's people give. It's just what we do. Uh, in the second letter to the same church, he says this, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So we can give generously and we can give cheerfully because God has abundantly given to us and he continues to abundantly give to us. Financial giving is part of self-giving. And I want to put before you an extraordinary example of this that uh, is very close to home for us, uh, one that's benefited our church. I mean, do you know how Seven Mile Road started? There are hundreds, yes, hundreds of Christians who, have, who you've never met uh, from outside our congregation, non-members of Seven Mile Road, that are showing their love to Waltham, to you, to us, by sacrificially giving beyond what they already give to their local church, just to make this happen. And it's not just to make sure that your pastor's families are fed, but to make sure that we have a place to meet, that those Bibles can be under your seats for people who may have never read the Bible before, that we have speakers that we have a soundboard, that we have water and coffee, giving beyond the bare necessities to bless, uh, to bless you, to, to quench your thirst while you're sitting in church. I mean, we don't need that, but we get that because of the love of our brothers and sisters from all over the country, uh, to make sure that we have time to meet with you, to care for you, to listen to you, time to tell the people of Waltham about Jesus. Uh, to provide a new church in Waltham where you get to be meaningful members. Now, as a church, our natural response to that generosity should be generosity, 
as we grow, as we mature, as we eventually taper off the support of our parents, right? Uh, (laughs) Our brothers and sisters. uh, What a beautiful picture of oneness love that Jesus prayed for. Uh, Let them be an example to all of us. And let's do the same. Let's be a church that gives inside and out. As always, if you have any questions about giving, how we handle giving, how we budget, like Clint said, set up a meeting with him. He'll gladly open the books with you. You can go through it. Uh, We're an open book about that. Uh, So the facets of meaningful membership are gathering, belonging, serving, and giving. And really, they're just an expression of gratitude towards God, this uh, self-giving, because he gave himself. He's actually the innovator of radical unselfishness. Paul talks about this uh, in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He tells us, have this mind among yourselves, this unselfishness, this radical unselfishness. Have this among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's believe in him. Meaningful membership flows out of oneness love marked by radical unselfishness. Remember that. So it's been great uh, going through this series with you guys. Uh, I love the church. That's why I'm up here. Uh, We're not perfect. We're not going to do all of this perfectly, but we can still do it, and and it will still be beautiful. I want to close out our entire membership series with this quote by uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 19th century preacher and pastor. He says this, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for I would not have been a perfect for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Let's pray.